Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Sally here, and I am back with the next installment of our Double Date series, where I recommend two books on a particular topic. Sometimes they're my favorite books on that topic. Sometimes it's just the two books that I think would make for a really great pairing. I love diving into a topic that piques my interest. I have a tendency to really just go all in, like the time that I thought I would read one book about becoming a better friend and have somehow ended up with at least five on my TBR and two that I've already read. So maybe a double date on becoming a better friend coming to you soon. If you're anything like me or if you just want to find some new reads on a wide range of topics, I'm excited to keep sharing these pairings with you in this series. Today we are going on a double date with two books about healing our inner wounds. I read a lot of self-help books and I also read a lot of books written by therapists. Uh, These two particularly were just, they have like some similarities, but their approaches are different enough that I thought it would make for a really interesting pairing. So first up is The Origins of You by Vienna Farin. This focuses on family systems and how our family of origin continues to impact us well into adulthood in big ways and small ways. It's a really interesting framework and process that she presents, but she's really kind of drilled down into into this really super easy to understand process. She offers a lot of questions that you can journal on or talk through with somebody, whether that is your therapist or somebody else that you love and trust to help identify what patterns and beliefs and behaviors are still with you from your family of origin and that maybe are holding you back. I found it super easy to understand and digest and really easy to apply. Even the parts that didn't feel like they were super relevant to me, I could think of a couple of people that they might apply to and and just use that to better understand my relationship with them. So I really loved it for that reason in particular. And I thought that that would pair really well with I Am Viosa by Christine Gutierrez, which is also really easy to understand and digest and apply. But what makes it different is that it has more of a spiritual lens too. Christine is a psychotherapist, so it's super grounded in like therapy, while also just really honoring like the goddess within or the god within. Viosa is the Spanish word for goddess. So it has mantras, meditations, journaling prompts, and other exercises that help you identify and heal from wounds from past trauma. Other bonuses to this one is that it's written by a Latina. The language in it is really approachable and down to earth. It's kind of like a no bullshit tone that I really love. And it is also available in Spanish. So if you ever wanted to share it with a Spanish speaker that you know, like an aunt, or if you're feeling really bold, maybe your mother. Or grandmother, I don't know. That option is available to you. Naturally, these two kind of paired in my mind, even though, like I said, the writing styles are super different and their approaches and backgrounds are different. But from both of them, I really just felt like, oh, okay, this is a book that I can keep coming back to if I have questions about myself, if I have questions about my relationships and the people that I'm interacting with. We're out here, we're trying to heal, we're trying to grow. And so if on your healing journey, if you want to 
pick up to these two books, I think that they're a great pairing. Enjoy your double date. I'd love to know any books that you've read and loved about this topic, or if you have a topic that you want me to take a deep dive on, please reach out. I'm always open to ideas. Your girl loves to read. You can get in touch with me on Instagram, Twitter, or anywhere at Sally Simply. Till next time, happy reading. In 1923, Joan Lowell was a rising silent film star in Hollywood. She appeared in adventure films and weepies. She had an uncredited part in Charlie Chaplin's Gold Rush, but she never became a star. In 1928, she decided to write an autobiography, Cradle of the Deep, to build her brand. Readers loved it. Cradle of the Deep was one of the early Book of the Month selections. It sold over 100,000 copies in 1929. But criticism started early. At first, critics claimed her husband wrote the story. It was assumed that a woman in her mid-twenties was incapable of writing the book. Then, in a very mean girl's twist, her high school classmates confirmed to everyone who asks that she didn't grow up on the sea at all, but was an ambitious student at Berkeley, California. The male-dominated New York literati wrote about Lowell and the scandal with early 2000s-era gawker-like glee. One man went as far as publishing a parody novel of Lowell's book just a few months later. The fellas were merciless. And yet still, Lowell was still invited to speak to groups, women's groups, who saw the book for what it was, a great story based on Lowell's and her father's lives, with a touch of hyperbolic exaggeration. Today, we would call it auto-fiction. Cradle of the Deep remains a rip-roaring adventure story, and Joan Lowell is far overdue for reconsideration as both a writer and a victim of misogynistic dismissal. The Feral House edition of Cradle of the Deep features a biographical afterword that tells the story of the scandal and Joan Lowell's incredible life and continued adventures after the scandal. It is available now at independent bookstores and internet retailers worldwide. If you're a fan of funny, smart, snarky women writers like Samantha Irby, Lindy West, Sloane Crossley, or Jenny Larson, listen up. From award-winning TV writer Laura Belgrave, Tough Titties is a hilarious collection of full-body cringe, watch-through-your-fingers life lessons her own husband calls loser sex in the city. Laura's wildly relatable coming-of-age stories include hate following her sixth-grade bully on social media decades later, moving home post-college to measure her self-worth in hookups with Upper East Side bartenders, dating a sociopathic man-baby, proving herself in the early 90s at New York's coolest magazine as the world's worst intern, falling for get-rich-quick schemes on the internet, and most of all, saying tough titties to the supposed twos in life. Driving a car, being on time, handing in your paperwork, learning to roast a chicken, and having kids. Peppered with cutting insights on our confusing, self-helpy culture that calls hair removal self-care and tells us to give our 110%, but also to give zero fucks, Tough Titties will leave you feeling better about, well, everything. Let's face it, we're all tired of shame spiraling after being told what to do when we know we're not gonna do any of it. Tough Titties comes out June 13th from Hachette Books. Order from your favorite local bookstore or shop online at bookshop.org. Hi everyone, I'm Jordi, and with us today is Shannon McKenna-Schmidt, and we are going to be talking about her new book, The First Lady of World War II, Eleanor Roosevelt's Daring Journey to the Frontlines and Back. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me here to talk about the extraordinary Eleanor. 
Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this because it's definitely a story that I never heard of. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going to say the same thing. So what was Eleanor Roosevelt's mission to the Pacific in World War II? And how did you come across this story? And why did you decide to write about it? Yeah, I was reading a collection of Eleanor's column, her syndicated newspaper column called My Day. And there was a brief mention that she visited Australia during World War II. And it was just a brief mention with one corresponding column, but it caught my interest because I had recently been to Australia and New Zealand. And the first thought that struck me was the distance that Eleanor would have had to have traveled to get there and under wartime conditions. So that was the hook that got me started. And then very early on, I came across something several years after Eleanor's trip to the Pacific. She wrote in an autobiography. The Pacific trip left a mark from which I think I shall never be free. And I found that statement so powerful and haunting, and it really compelled me to discover what she had experienced during those five weeks in the Pacific that would make her say that even several years later. Mm -hmm. So what was her end goal? Like, why did she go to the Pacific and why would they send a first lady over there in World War II? Yeah, that's a great question. So she went largely to thank the troops for herself and also on behalf of the president and to Bowie Morale. It was an informal diplomatic mission to allied nations, Australia and New Zealand. She wanted to see the war work that women were doing there. And she also went as a representative of the American Red Cross, and she took on the added responsibility of inspecting their facilities while she was in the Pacific. And I feel that nobody else could have done this trip except for Eleanor Roosevelt. She occupied a really unique place in the world and in the United States at the time. She was world famous and she was a leading voice during World War II, even, even abroad. So collectively, you know, she had the recording skills, the travel experience, the people skills, the morale building skills. And so she was uniquely suited to make this trip at this time. Yeah, and once kind of word got out that she was over there, she was met with a lot of opposition, both by, you know, some congressmen, by generals and admirals who were a little snuffed that she was there because, you know, resources could have been allocated somewhere else and certain troops who didn't believe with her political views. But somehow, she was over, able to overcome all of that, and she was still able to lead and boost morale. So what was it about her, you know, that kind of resonated with everybody? Yes, she did meet with some opposition. And the thing about Eleanor Roosevelt is travel was one of the reasons that she had a lot of detractors. And it's actually one of the things that made her a controversial first lady. Because first ladies, traditionally, they stayed close to the White House. They oversaw social functions. You know, they certainly weren't high off to an active theater of war. So she always had, had those, you know, critics and, and detractors to deal with. She gets to the Pacific. Yes, I mean, all of these generals and, and, and admirals, they're stiny. They don't know what to do with this woman in, the, in their midst. But what I love about Eleanor is she just does her thing. You know, she's there to do her thing for what she believes in, and she doesn't let this hold her back from doing the job that she's there to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, reading the book, I feel like every other page, 
I would stop and say something to my sister because she's usually with me like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. And yeah, I remember reading something about how she was almost nervous about becoming first lady because she didn't want to lose herself or her independence. And she was kind of maybe hesitant to step into the role because it seemed like she didn't want to be pigeonholed into only having to deal with domestic duties. So was she one of the first first ladies that we've seen kind of step out of that typical first lady role? Yes, she absolutely is. And in fact, her immediate predecessor is Lou Huber, who was very independent, traveled, made speeches. She took the more traditional route and basically stopped all most public life. And that was the thing. They, they weren't supposed to, to be in the public. In fact, Eleanor's grandmother once advised her because she was from a more of an upper crust New York City family. She once told Eleanor, a woman's place is not in the public eye. And I always found that, you know, kind of funny given, given what Eleanor became. And so when she first became first lady, she was independent. She traveled. She was an educator. She was a political advocate. And she was afraid of losing her own identity and having it absorbed into this traditional role of first lady. And many people in the country expected a traditional first lady. But what I love is, in fact, what happened is it just became an even bigger platform for her to do the things that she cared about, which was basically trying to make life better for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also found it interesting kind of going back to Eleanor's upbringing. She wasn't always involved in politics and not always outspoken, even about suffrage ideals. So what kind of put her into the role of politics or what inspired her to get more involved in that? So Franklin FDR was governor of New York State and before that he was a state senator and she started to be exposed to politics during those periods. But it was really after FDR um, became stricken with adult onset polio and he had a political advisor named Lewis Howe and Lewis saw in Eleanor somebody who could, with some tutelage, go out there and keep the Roosevelt name before the public so that then when Franklin would resume his political career. And what I love is that so she wasn't like a natural at any of this. You know, she really had to grow into this role to find out that it really was her passion. And a, a newspaper even said that, you know, in her own right, she was a leading figure in the Democratic Party in New York State. So she she had a lot of this before she even came to the White House. She had to overcome a fear of public speaking. In fact, she talks about how she had to overcome a lot of fears. And so I just, I love her refreshing honesty. You know, she doesn't pretend that she, you know, oh, just snapped her fingers and was so good at all of this. So she had quite a journey before she even got to the Pacific and all of this stuff layering on top of each other made it so that she could go to the Pacific and do this extensively amazing trip. Yeah, it seemed like the Pacific was definitely something that was on her mind and on her heart constantly and she just wanted to get out there and specifically Guadalcanal. So what was it about this region and this place in particular that she wanted to get to? So the year before, Eleanor had gone to Great Britain. And again, you know, 
it wasn't as arduous of a trip, she, but she did lay that groundwork the year before. Now she goes to the Pacific almost exactly one year later, and she wants to do more. And that more includes going to what was still designated as the front lines, which was Guadalcanal. And even throughout her time in the United States and her time traveling through the Pacific, she met a lot of men who had been wounded on Guadalcanal and the fighting. And so she felt that she owed it to them as a tribute to the men who had received their injuries there, who had lost their lives there. It was a very tangible way that she could pay her respects to the servicemen. And also, it was a personal test of courage for her. And her foe, he started out as her foe in the Pacific, was Admiral, Admiral William Halsey. And she was afraid that he wasn't going to let her go to Guadalcanal. And it devastated her because she thought she would be perceived as lacking courage. And she didn't know how she would face any of the men in hospitals again if they thought that she was afraid to go there. So it was both a tribute to the servicemen and, and a personal test for herself. Yeah, and talking about the courageous aspects, what I didn't realize, and after reading the book, you know, air transportation was much different way back then. And the way that it was described in the books, you know, you talk about these trans-Pacific or transatlantic trips that flights would take. It was a little bit sketchy because the fueling situation or planes hadn't really done that a whole lot before. So it wasn't typical. So what was even that aspect of her journey like? Yeah, so she first had to start out crossing the country, which at the t- from New York to San Francisco, which at the time took about 20 hours of flying. They stopped to refuel the plane twice. So even that was, was, was taxing and, and fairly arduous. So then she gets to San Francisco and she switches to a military transport plane. And even traveling for five weeks in the Pacific in one of these military transport planes, you know, first of all, they're uncomfortable or they're not heated, they're not pressurized. But, you know, it was also dangerous because they weren't created from scratch to be transport planes. What the military did was they took the designs for bombers and they converted them into military transport planes. And there are many, many stories of people going down in the Pacific, uh, pilots having to ditch these planes in the water. So even that was was dangerous in and of itself, the way that, that she traveled. And then, you know, danger lurked in the Pacific theater. You know, so they kept the, the trip quiet for the first 10 days for her safety when she's going through these South Pacific islands. And then even on the back end of the trip, they changed her route. She was supposed to stop on a certain island and they, they changed that and sent her somewhere else because there were reports of Japanese planes looking at, at on a retaliatory raid. So for her safety, they changed, they changed her route. Yeah, I, I was, while reading this book, just thinking it was incredible that it's not really common to have a political figure like the First Lady go overseas somewhere to the front lines during a war that was very brutal. And um, I just admired her tenacity and just her relentlessness to try and just do whatever she could to assist and boost morale. And I want to say in the book, it talks about how there was media coverage in New Zealand that described Eleanor by saying, 
No other president's wife has exercised anything like the same power either in her own land or in the world. So what was it about Eleanor's presence and herself that just had such an impact on societies around the world and with the troops? Yeah, so she was world famous at this time. And and again, that's, that's why I think that only she could have done this trim. And she was widely admired in New Zealand in particular for her crusading. Her, her 10 years as First Lady, she had really worked for the betterment of society, for women's rights, you know, to help children, education. So that really resonated with the people of New Zealand. And Eleanor also made morale-raising addresses to women in, you know, Brazil and France. So she was really seen as this leading figure, a voice around the world to the allied nations. And the other thing that I love about the New Zealanders is, is they loved that Eleanor she was basically called out by name by the Nazis and threatened by the Nazis. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the fact that these other nations took note of the United States First Lady in this way, I think really shows how special she was. Yeah, I thought it was a testament to her as a person that the Axis powers were putting out propaganda against her. Yeah. Joseph Goebbels, who was Hitler's propaganda minister, he wrote in his diary that Mrs. Roosevelt is shooting her mouth off around the country because she was going around the United States denouncing Hitler. And he said, if she were my wife, it would be a different story. And, you know, but she wasn't his wife. She was FDR's wife who actually supported her in what she was doing. Yes, I remember reading that and just thinking, man, I feel really bad for his wife like absolutely obviously amongst other things that were happening there but right yeah that's just terrible and so speaking of Eleanor's involvement with politics what was her involvement with civil rights both on the home front and on the front lines because you know reading some of these stories like I knew segregation happened but there were specific stories that I was just shocked about, like how they brought segregation to Australia and they actually spoke out about it. So if you could share a little bit about what Eleanor had to kind of say about that. Yeah, so Eleanor, at this point in 1943, she has been a longtime advocate for civil rights. She has taken a lot of abuse for that position in the U.S., At the time that she left in the summer of 1943, even in the midst of war, the United States couldn't couldn't let go of that. And one of the reasons that she wanted to go was to remind people are striking at factories across the nation. And she felt in general that people were becoming complacent. She wanted to link the fighting front and the home front and to remind people on the home front that their servicemen aren't going to come home until the war is won. And she was asked by, I believe it was the Secretary of War when she went to Great Britain not to talk about race because they didn't want people in the U.S. to realize that, you know, Black servicemen were looked on with horror, you know, by other nations and and that they were treated differently. But when she goes to the Pacific, she doesn't adhere to that. And she, she specifically addresses race 
in particular in a speech that she gives in Australia before she leaves. Because yeah, the United States wasn't the only the only nation with a problem in that regard. Australia actually had a whites almost only policy, and they even tried to keep black U.S. troops from from being stationed in Australia, which didn't come to pass because General MacArthur said no to that. But yes, yeah, so she she spoke out about race on this trip. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting how they asked her not to say anything while she was over in England, and she didn't. But specifically, while she was in the Pacific, I believe the president also asked her kind of not to mention anything, but she couldn't stay silent anymore on the topic. So what caused her to address what was happening over there? That was an excellent point and an excellent question. And I, and I do think... The thing and why she's really speaking out about it is because at this point in the war, okay, the tide has turned for the Allies in Europe and in the Pacific, turned in our favor, far from done. But what she's trying to do at this point in time is to prepare people, get us to finish the war, you know, the nation and and around the world to finish the war. But she's also looking ahead to the post-war and she really wants to see in post-war, what are all these sacrifices being made for? You know, if we're just going to go back to marginalizing people. And so she's, she's really looking ahead to the, to the post-war piece as well. And what kind of a foundation we want to build and what kind of a world we want to have. And a world that's segregated to her defeats the entire purpose of, of the war and, and fighting Hitler. And so speaking of post-war time, what role did Eleanor play after World War II and even after FDR passed away? So Eleanor, so, so this trip was, was very hard on her physically and emotionally. She came back, she lost 30 pounds, she fell into a deep depression. She was haunted by the suffering that she saw. And, but she said that it was going to make her work harder to achieve peace. And a near-term important thing for her to do was to pass legislation for servicemen who were returning to support them. And she wanted it passed immediately, not after the war was done, because we already had servicemen coming back who were wounded or needed other care or other, other support. And but yes, her longer-term goal was achieving peace so that this never happened again, so that we never sent another generation of young people to die in battle. And at this point where she's in the Pacific, it's it's actually extra poignant because we know that FDR is only about a year and a half away from suddenly passing away. And they exchange affectionate notes. And that that really, you know, kind of was was very poignant to me. And also, right around the time that FDR unexpectedly passed away in 1945, the two of them were going to head to the first meeting of the United Nations in San Francisco. And he, unfortunately, passed away. And she thought that, she, she actually said, you know, the story is over. She thought that she would just, you know, fade into the background, you know, now that FDR was no longer president. But that's actually not the case. And she ended up being one of the first diplomats to the United Nations. So 
it, it does take on this extra layer of poignancy. At least it's at least it did while I was writing the book because we all know this is going to come to pass for her, but she doesn't know it at the time. But you can see it. You can see the seeds. Yeah, I I was excited reading about that. So during all of your research, what was either your favorite story or lesson learned or quality about Eleanor that you found fascinating or loved? I personally identified with her on having to overcome fears and to be able to take criticism. You know, honestly, even putting a book out there, you open yourself up to criticism. And, you know, and I would ask myself, well, what, what would Eleanor do? And she wouldn't let any of that hold her back. And again, I love her honesty, you know, that, that she had to deal with a lot of these things. And I also loved her fearlessness. So I really identified with Eleanor, the, the traveler and the adventurer, and literally breaking new ground. She went out there and she trailblazed. And I love that she made headlines for her travels. In 1934, she was featured on the cover of a general interest magazine and declared America's most traveled first lady. And that was only one year into her tenure. And I loved her compassion and caring. I mean, she really cared about people on an individual level. You know, none of this was abstract for her. And I really, I think all of that is embodied in her trip to the Pacific. You know, everything that we love about her, her courage, her compassion, her crusading for a better world. Yeah. Another thing that surprised me while reading this book was how much she really cared about her family. She put her family first in a lot of areas while also kind of going out and making her own way in a time where that wasn't very typical of women to do. And it was almost like her and FDR had this political partnership where they both kind of worked together around the world trying to do stuff. Yeah, that's absolutely cool. And that's, that's one of the things that I love and love about their relationship. And with the Pacific trip in particular, FDR knew that Eleanor needed this on a personal level. She was constantly looking for ways to contribute to the war effort. And also, you know, he benefited from all of the traveling that she did. Um, as First Lady, she was, you know, constantly crisscrossing the country, inspecting New Deal initiatives. The information that she would bring back aided him and his policy advisors. And he said in a cabinet meeting, my missus gets around a lot. And he was very proud of her ability to connect with people. And yeah, I, I love that, you know, kind of duality in, in their partnership. Yeah, it really seems... Like throughout her time as first lady, she really had a pulse on the people and was able to connect to everyone. And I, I remember reading about how when she would visit troops in the hospitals, she would even ask them, like, what messages can I send back to like your mom or your loved one, whoever's waiting for you back home? And she actually did it. Like, I can't imagine, you know, all the stuff that she would just have to do on the daily, putting that on top of it and then following through with everything that she said she was going to do. Yeah, and she absolutely did that. She started this in Great Britain. She would, she kept law books, and she continued this in the Pacific. And, you know, the servicemen that she visited, bedside, wounded servicemen, she would write down their name, what their injuries were, where they received them, and the name and address of a family member that she could contact. And she did. She wrote notes. She made telephone calls when she got back, and she followed up on that. And again, that's, that's just what I love. Like, 
this wasn't abstract to her. She really did care about people on an individual level. Okay, so we've talked about how Eleanor's mission to the Pacific, and once she was there, even certain places that she was going to go still had to be confirmed with the generals and admirals that were out there. So how did she finally gain permission or access to go to like Guadalcanal and certain areas? So to get to Guadalcanal, there was one man standing in Eleanor's way, and that was Admiral, Admiral William Halsey, commander of the South Pacific Forces. And on her way to New Zealand and Australia, Eleanor stopped at the island where he had his headquarters. And but even by the time she left there, she didn't think she was despondent because she thought he was going to deny her request to visit Guadalcanal. He said that he needed he she could not go there without a fighter escort, and they were all tied up in a battle at that time. She travels, she comes back to his headquarters, and she gets the news that she can go. And ultimately, what it came down to is that morale wins wars. And Admiral Halsey could see the uplifting effect that she had on the servicemen that she was visiting. He saw it firsthand accompanying her to hospitals. He, of course, heard heard all the scuttlebutt that was in the Pacific now about her, her trip. And he said that he marveled most at the expressions on the men's faces as she leaned over them in a hospital bed, the kind word or a joke. And that to me, sums up so much of why she was there and the fact that this rough, tough admiral comes to see this. And he cares about his men, too. And so he he ultimately gives her permission to go to Guadalcanal, and his fears were not unfounded. Guadalcanal was, in fact, bombed some nights before and after her visit. And it, it actually led Admiral Halsey to speculate whether the Japanese also had code breakers. Yeah, just thinking about you know, the environment in general, like that's kind of terrifying. And the fact that she did it and she did it with such energy and enthusiasm and genuineness just, again, speaks to who she was as a person. Yeah, she really was extraordinary. You know, and what I hope people take from this book is to see Eleanor in a new light as an adventurer and a traveler, but also to reinforce all the things that we already admire about her and just how extraordinary she and unique she really was. All right, Jen. Thank you for sharing the story of Eleanor that I'm sure a lot of us haven't heard before and getting able to hear about her in new ways. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh, 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 oh. A well-